Hey guys, welcome back to the Philcroft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, currently sitting on the side of the road in the beautiful state of Montana on the west side of Glacier National Park. And I just wanted to flush out a few ideas and thoughts and experiences from my Go Rig Challenge um, before I got home and before I forgot everything. TBI. Hey, so if you guys have been tracking our social media, you know that we set out to do the Go Rig Challenge doing a road trip in the United States from Prescott to the Canadian border. And, you know, everybody who heard this up front was like, hey, it's a road trip, no big deal. It's not special. And I didn't think it was either until I included that there'd be no support, no infrastructure, no gas stations, no grocery stores, no hotels. And I would be doing this in a vehicle uh, and be self-sustained the entire way. Look, it was a challenge. I'm not going to lie. Here I am three days later, a little sleep deprived. Uh, My gut's all jacked up because I've been eating like crap. Um, It definitely was a great experience uh, to, to flush out a lot of ideas thoughts, um, lessons learned, and trying to do this for the sake of education for preparedness and survival. Hey, look, the reality is a lot of people talk about their survival rigs, their go uh, go rigs or their bug out rigs. And the reality is if you're actually going to do this, uh, you probably want to flush out the worst case scenario and the potential courses of action you would do uh, if it's a natural man-made or, you know, catastrophic incident that takes place. You know, at the time I was planning this, I was doing articles, writing personal blog spots on com about a potential EMP attack, electric uh, or electromagnetic pulse attack, which is a real threat to our national security in our country and potentially, obviously, to our livelihood if you look at it. You, you flush out some of the worst case scenarios, you really start to identify how fragile and weak we are as individuals, as families, societies, and as a culture, you know, we, we're becoming more complacent. And when I look at preparing for the worst case scenario, I always want to exercise that rehearsal opportunity in the worst version of it. But what I realize in this kind of capacity, it doesn't even have to be the worst case scenario. It could be um, you know, a, a weather incident that creates this environment where you lose electricity for a few days, where the infrastructure does shut down because you lack the electricity to fill your gas tank, to travel long distances, and you are constrained. And, you know, this, this trip took me a total of three days. Well, the electricity has gone out for several days in the United States, some parts, some more re- remote and rural locations for weeks. So when you look at the Go Rig Challenge and you're moving um, self-sustained across a vast distance, you know, taking back roads and inclement weather and, and that ideal weather, you could start to see how you could flush out a lot of lessons learned. And, and I want to go over some of those lessons learned along the way. One thing I, I will let you know is uh, following this segment of this podcast, this isn't the end all be all because the, you know, after this is done, when I get back and kind of flush out a lot of the things that I want to fix that were definitely broken along the way, I want to concentrate the efforts on repairing those things and coming up with solutions to provide you that education and that value. I also had the opportunity, the the uh, unique opportunity to meet up with a Canadian who owns a company called Off Grid Trek. His name's Renee, 
and he's a subject matter expert in solar energy and power. And I did a short podcast with him inside of my vehicle, recorded a podcast that I'm going to attach as, uh, you know, the second or uh, part B of this podcast. And we have the opportunity to flush out um, some of my thoughts and ideas on solar energy and how it could be beneficial, um, you know, to to you as a outdoors person, as a off-grid kind of person, or just somebody who's into preparedness like I am. You know, having experienced overland movements across the world, really, I mean, I've done overland movements in Libya, um, in Niger, Africa, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, Iraq, a whole bunch of austere and dangerous environments. But a lot of the times, you know, we are self-sustained for a certain period of time. And I've done it for weeks at a time in certain parts of the world. But, you know, it's you're not afforded some of the luxuries that you are uh, when operating or working for a military organization where, you know, I can order a resupply or I could have a quick reaction force on hand. When you think about bugging out and utilizing your go rig, for example, your off-road vehicle and moving over long distances, you might just be on your own. You might have a network, but it might not be um, in one location. You know, you think about taking your families and friends, for example. Well, if you're if you're if you're extracting from Arizona, for example, and you're going to the Canadian border, well, if you're trying to move with all your friends and family and everybody else, that is a completely set of circumstances um, that are that are not conducive to survival. That take unique uh, and skilled planning prior uh, to coordinate to make happen. So, you know, I haven't even gone down that rabbit hole yet, but. I just want to make that point that this is talking about self-sustaining yourself. So individual reliance and survival when the worst case scenario happens, let alone, you know, bringing a, bringing your whole entire family or all, all your loved ones or even your community of like minded. So when I talk about this, I just want to keep it a little bit organized and flush out some of the things that I experienced. One of the things that I experienced along the way is the fact that fuel is a significant consideration. In fact, it is a staple for me. You know, I talk about staples of survival for uh, like regular survival, right? With, with it, which is uh, living and then surviving in an austere environment by yourself, you know, your backpack or maybe just you and what you have in your pockets. I, I talk about fire, shelter, um, water. Those are basic staples of survival. Well, when I'm talking about mobility, when I'm talking about overland movement or go rigs, the number one thing uh, to as a staple of survival is fuel. If you have no fuel, you have nothing. So you have to have fuel. And not only do you do you have to have fuel, but you also have to have a a capability to contain it and contain it for the long haul. But remember, you're limited by your payload capacity. You're limited by your ability to carry that that fuel and that weight at 6.3 pounds per gallon for an extended period of time. And, you know, when I thought when I started talking about this with like Scott, uh, the you know, the owner of Overland Journal, uh, one of the things that we talked about was payload. Uh, people across the, the globe pay pay attention to their payload capacity. But not a lot of people pay, pay attention to their payload capacity in the United States, because 
in the United States, you have a gas station every couple hundred meters. I mean, really, you don't have to go a long way uh, without seeing a gas station. So it's not really dependent on us. Well, people in more austere environments in our country, uh, specifically, obviously, Montana that I went through, take that into consideration. In fact, I was surprised at seeing the number of trucks that were traveling in the back country where you can go 100 plus miles and not see a gas station or civilization, period, that they were traveling with these tanks that were uh, reservoir tanks that were either being used with pumps attached to them or they were tied into their fuel tank uh, like mine that I have on the, the Go Rig Challenge vehicle. So that's a huge consideration to understand. Remember, a lot of people run around uh, in their everyday life with about 15 to 20 gallons of fuel on board. And, you know, if you're looking at 15 to 20 uh, miles per gallon um, and then you take that times 20, you're not looking at a lot of fuel. Hell, most people I know drive around with half a tank of fuel on board uh, anyways. And so they fill up, they go, they take it down to a quarter tank to half a tank. And so really that degrades your capability to react when you're looking at, you know, an immediate action drill or reacting to a survival catastrophe or event. Let's say you're going about your daily life and a natural catastrophe hits you. Well, if it shuts down the gas station, you are literally left. If you're listening to this now, look at your fuel tank. If you're listening to it in your vehicle, look at your fuel tank and go, okay, now I have half a tank of fuel. I'm getting 15 to 20 miles per gallon and calculate that. Well, that becomes the world that exists around you and the extension of your rucksack or capability. If you're looking at your go rig be an extension of your rucksack, which I treat it that way. So now when I look at my gas tank, it's a completely different take on my capability and survival because you only have, have so much fuel and that is literally the limitation. You could have a truck full of equipment. You could have a truck gun, a med bag. You could have all this high speed stuff. But if you don't have the ability to extend your fuel tank or your range of of mileage based on your fuel, then you are SOL. And so what I want you to think about is uh, what I learned along the, along the way. Fuel was important. I would recommend to you going to transferflow.com because um, that's what I did. I, I actually went to transferflow.com, picked out the Trax 3, which is a 75-gallon in-tank um, uh, fuel setup or in-bed fuel setup where it ties into my fuel I have an auxiliary indicator um, via a display that's in my dash, and that's how I roll now. Now I have 110 gallons of fuel capability, which for me at 20 miles per gallon is 2,000 plus miles of range. Uh, not only is it range, but it's convenience. Now, obviously, if you drive a you know an everyday commuting car, you live in an, in an urban environment, do you have to do that? No. But what I'm saying is extend your range by extending your capability and paying attention to that. So if you have, hell, you can have a Prius, which, you know, you can get a super uh, extension of mileage via your, your gas uh, and through your, the economics and your MPG. Well, why don't you get the biggest fuel tank or the biggest fuel container you could put in the back of your, your vehicle, fill it up, and then utilize it uh, on the on the go, and so you're you're constantly you know cycling through fuel, but you have the peace of mind and the capability of having uh, fuel on board just in case something happens. 
And hell, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't have to be the worst case scenario. I'm not talking about, you know, a vortex or a significant weather event or a natural uh, or man-made disaster. I'm talking about you're driving and then you forget that you're, you know, you're, you're paying attention to the environment around you because it's majestic. And then you end up in a situation where you don't have fuel. Well, guess what? Now you have it in a container and now you're additionally prepared and you extended your range. Um, also, you can get onboard fuel tanks that extend the capacity of your current tank, meaning it ties into your capacity and you don't have to think about it. You just fill up that extra tank. In my six foot bed setup and the transfer flow kit that I have, you fill it up and it's 75 gallons and it's fire and forget. I slept in the back of my rig and didn't smell any fumes, no issues at all because it's contained, it's weatherproofed, it's sealed, and it's protected in my truck bed. If you have a truck, I recommend that setup because I recommend on top of that that you have some kind of canopy over your bed to provide insulation and protection for the things that you have. If you have a fuel tank, you want that added protection for that. Because remember, you know, if you look at catastrophes that are natural, for example, they typically turn into man-made disasters um, in a short period of time because people fight for resources and that could happen in the blink of an eye. Something else that I, that I experienced uh, that I really never experienced before is the weather, the cold weather. Look, cold weather does a lot of things. One of the things that it, it had an effect that I've never predicted for is the effect on gas mileage. When I left um, Prescott, Arizona, I was getting about 20 miles per gallon. 20 to 22 is, is my range. The further north I got, and it wasn't because elevation, because Prescott uh, sits at 5,000 feet. It wasn't because of elevation, but it was because of the temperature. My gas mileage plummeted, and I never realized that. But by the time I hit the Canadian border, and it was below freezing, it was in the teens and 20s, I was around 14 miles per gallon. Part of me thought maybe it was because of the air-fuel ratio. Uh, that could be the issue. But then I talked to the uh, 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 the owner of off-grid Trek who has experience in cold weather. And he said, no, it's it's the cold weather. The colder the ambient air temperature, the more significant of impact it has on your gas mileage. Because obviously less oxygen. Um, so your ratio, air to fuel ratio is uh, messed up. And, and obviously this affects, uh, even with fuel injection, your overall uh, gas consumption. I never even thought about that. In fact, my range was nowhere near the calculation that I calcu calculated for. And I'll talk about that more in detail in my uh, next podcast when I get back home talking about the Gerberg Challenge. Because I'm, I'm going to provide a lot of these problems that I discovered and then the solutions that I come up with a team back at Fieldcraft Survival. Something else is the ambient air temperature and how uncomfortable it could be when trying to sleep. One of the failures that I'll articulate more about in the setup is the fact that I didn't take in consideration the cold weather and that effect on batteries. Uh, that's what I believe would happen when I took a 2000 watt inverter, right? I had a national Luna spare battery that was hooked up to my main battery. And so it's rigged up in my truck bed to a spare battery that I was going to use for auxiliary power. And then I had a, a uh, inverter that was 2000 watts that was going to power an electric heater. Well, because of the cold weather, I don't think that charged adequately the, the, the way that I intended it to be. 
So when I plugged it in, it plummeted the power, which is common. So it's something that you're going to see. And it truly affected my ability to use that electric heater. I mean, I could have used it, but I would have drained that battery completely dead in a short period of time. So I decided to use uh, my cold weather sleeping bag instead. What I will say is a, a pro is insulating the truck bed. One of the one of the factors that was brought up to me was that that and I knew this from condensation that I've experienced in camping and uh, overland experiences overseas is I had a soft top on top of a truck bed and then I had an elevated platform and I was sleeping on that platform. Well, I expected condensation. I didn't experience that condensation. Uh, and I think one of the reasons I didn't experience it is because of the how porous the opening of that soft top was. And so it was able to flush clean air through that, reducing the overall condensation. But I also think what kept me warm in the back of the truck bed was the insulation. Even though it was only a thin layer of reflectix, I had a subfloor and I had layering. You know, when you create that barrier, that air barrier, uh, it, which is important in insulating, you, you create uh, that R factor that gets it to a point where it's warm, it's retaining heat, um, but it's also not creating a, a uh, you know, a, a trash bag barrier where you're getting soaking wet. And I was actually quite comfortable in the back on that little Thermarest mat that I got from uh, Walmart for 50 bucks. And so, but I wasn't expecting that cold of weather. And so all the gear, all the things that I was carrying, it just, it, it wasn't warm enough and I didn't feel prepared enough. And so I'm just flushing that out with you guys because it's something that I definitely am going to note and talk about more and then provide more uh, better solutions, more better, more better solutions. Um, something obviously that uh, came into effect with the, the, the tires uh, was the cold weather and the tire combo. I didn't get the opportunity to mount up the Falcon AT3Ws prior, and that's okay. 37-inch tire on an 18-inch rim, that's okay. I didn't get the opportunity to do that because I know that's going to be the fix. I was running it on Toyo MTs, which is a great tire. Actually, Toyo RTs, which is a great tire, but it's not very good in uh, cold weather. In fact, when I came over, this is after the Go Re Challenge. I had already uh, came into the Canadian or, or, or hit the Canadian border. I was going west. But when I hit uh, the Glacier National Park, I think I was up beyond seven, 8,000 feet, and it was sketchy. Uh, I mean, I've been through South Lake Tahoe. I've been over the Rockies in Colorado, and this is probably the most sketchy drive that I've done in a big vehicle. You know, the truck performed really well. Four-wheel drive, I could, I could lower the gearing automatically with an auto six-speed transmission that's built into the, uh, uh, the gear selector. Um, I, I was in four-wheel drive the entire time. But there was no salt on the road. So unkept roads, salty, icy, and that kept that rear end uh, swinging back and forth to left and right. I will say that loading your truck bed is an important element in retaining traction on the ground in a, in a truck that has a light, light rear end. Look, any truck that you, that you roll, if, it, if it's a pre-runner style or even an off-road um, heavy-duty truck, you want to have weight in the rear end. You know, my truck has 4,000 pounds of payload capacity. That 4,000 pound payload capacity um, allows it to carry a lot of weight compared to like 1,000 to 1,500 pounds with some of these light SUVs like my runner. But when you have 4,000 pounds, that doesn't mean 
you know, you don't take advantage of that. In fact, I think as a common staple that I'm going to brief is that everybody who has a truck bed and has a heavy duty truck should have a minimum of 50 gallons on board, which gives you uh, about 300 plus pounds of weight, which is important to keeping the ass into that vehicle grounded. Uh, if you've ever driven a pickup truck and you're on like ruts um, off secondary roads uh, or dirt roads, what you'll get is you'll get that wheel hop off the suspension. Typically with leaf spring suspension on the back of the truck, that could be negated with a heavier rear end. And I, I advise that for everybody who's attempting it. Look, the go the go rid challenge was a great experience, and and uh and it was a lot more challenging than I thought. I have a laundry list of things that I'm going to recommend along the way. I I, I want to say thank you to everybody who provided support. Transferflow.com, um, uh, uh, rigid. Uh, the list goes on. I'll I'll start flushing these guys out, especially to off grid Trek. You know, I use off grid Trek's 200 watt uh, solar panel. I also have their their uh, they're 28 sitting in front of me on my dashboard. Look, I, I want to push sustainable survival uh, this year as an education and content platform because I think it's important. I think it's important that we get beyond the aesthetics that we're so complacent and comfortable in in America. You know, we, we often think bigger is better, but less is more, especially when it comes to overlanding properly and preparedness uh, properly. When, when I think about my experiences in reconnaissance and special operations, I looked and measured ounces because every ounce counted and it had to have a dual purpose and a functionality inside my rucksack. Well, when we look at uh, capabilities, solar energy is 100% a staple of that go rig or that mobility platform. You want to be able to harness the sun and that energy on the fly uh, to, to tackle all the electronic, like, the example I made in the podcast that you'll hear here in a couple of minutes is, look, if you're if you have an, a tech, technological piece of equipment, let's say it's a uh, iPad. Well, if it's 512 gigs, I want 512 gigs of offline maps. That's a that's a completely different dimension of a capability when you're looking at um, adding technology and integrating it into your survival or preparedness game. So how do you charge that when you're off grid? Well, you harness solar energy. You harness a, a 20 watt, 28 watt, one pound uh, solar panel that I'm going to be talking about uh, later uh, on in the podcast. Or you harness a 200 watt that's off your rig that's utilized uh, to charge your, your fridge, your stove, your heater, um, and that iPad that adds that benefiting um, capability to your, your uh, preparedness um, game. So, hey, you know, I appreciate you guys tuning in this. Um, thank you to Renee from Off Grid Trek for driving three and a half hours south to meet up with me and do this podcast. I, I have attached his podcast to this podcast uh, because I want you guys to hear from Renee and hear about the great things he's doing. Also, some things that we have in the near future with Overland Expo West. We did get confirmed for a booth, and I hope to see you guys there. We will have Off Grid Trek on our, our, our next Go Rig we'll be building. And look forward to the experience. Uh, this podcast for everybody who's listening is sponsored by Boss Strongbox. Boss Strongbox provides solutions for carrying and securing your off-grid gear, your valuables, your guns, whatever it may be. They provide the solutions for it at BossStrongbox.com. Make sure you check those guys out. 
Use Fieldcraft to save 25%. That's a huge discount. What I like about Boss Strongbox as well is we're working together on some uh, different projects. One of those projects is creating a uh, low-vis, reduced-weight, ultra-lightweight overland setup. You know, when I when I look at some of the setups I have, I love truck vault. I utilize truck vault when I'm transporting guns to any training class. But it, when I go in the backwoods of, you know, off-road or off-grid, I want to be able to save that payload capacity for equipment, not necessarily uh, the container that holds that equipment. So we're coming up with some really cool solutions. Also, this podcast is sponsored by Colonel Blades. Hey, if you guys haven't seen it already, we carry the NCO Low-Viz Colonel Blade. It is the everyday carry fixed blade knife that we recommend for everyday carry because when, you, when you're looking for contingencies outside of a firearm for concealed carry use, you want to be able to use something that can save your life in self-defense. I'm not just talking about utility. Utility is one spectrum of capability, but I actually want something that's meant to defend life. And the NCO Low-Viz, which we carry at PhilCraftSurvival.com, is one of those. They also have a special line. In fact, on my uh, in my pocket, I have one of their folders, which is the NCO Low-Viz in a folder format. I actually use it for utility, and I flip it open and know that I can hold it and defend my life and my family's life if need be. You could use the coupon code PhilCraft to get free shipping anywhere in the continental United States. Hey, guys, I appreciate you guys listening to this podcast. Please stay tuned for part two, which is the podcast that's added added to this with Renee from Off Grid Trek, where you'll be schooled up on solar power and energy. Thanks, guys. Uh, I didn't say it last time, so I'll say it now. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive. Hey, guys, it's Mike from Fieldcraft Survival. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, I'm on the road right now. And I'm sitting in a 2016-18 to 18 Toyota 4Runner with my good friend Renee from Off Grid Trek. Hey, Renee, what's going on, man? Oh, not much. Just uh, enjoying the view. Yeah, <laughs> we're in a gas station par- parking lot on the border of Canada and the U.S. And, um, you know, wrapping up kind of the trip, the Go Rig Challenge trip, I wanted to make sure I included Renee in this because you, you just drove here from Calgary, right? That I did, yeah. So that was about three hours? About three and a half. That's not bad. That's not bad. That's exactly the distance that I, I traveled this morning. And, um, you know, when you when you look at or follow any of the things that we have going on, we're, we're this year we're big on sustainable survival, which for me, you know, solar, wind, whatever it may be, fits in that perfectly. And uh, if you guys don't know Renee, if you don't know Off Grid Trek, um, I'll just let you describe the company, uh, you, you know, how you got started in solar and and kind of leading up to the point that you uh, are, you know, off-grid trick today. Yeah, you bet. Um, long story short, uh, we're, we're the Canadian distributor for uh, the Echo 4x4 brand uh, off-road camping trailers from South Africa. Um, when I was over there, I guess it would have been about a year, year and a half, or just under a year and a half ago, meeting the manufacturers, seeing their different uh, their facilities that they had. Uh, it perked my, my interest there. I saw the solar that they, they they were using to run their rigs, and it just kind of reminded me of my time in the military and when I got out and I contracted for a satellite communication company, the solar product that we were offering to the different military organizations to power their satellite units uh, in remote locations just kind of reminded me of what they were using. And so basically the wheels just started turning and uh, I talked to quite a few different manufacturers, found one to work with, 
and now we design and have a very lightweight, efficient uh, solar blanket that's waterproof, it's rugged, it can be used pretty much in all environments, even low light conditions. Basically it's a product that I would want to use myself based on my setup because right now what's important to me is lightweight, uh, basically small and efficient. It has to be efficient, it has to power my fridge freezer setup, it has to power any of my other devices. I want to be, no matter what the weather is, if I'm off off the beaten path, if it's raining, if it's snowing, if there's, I hate saying it, heavy smoke from forest fires because we've had a lot of that in the last couple of years, I still want to be able to power and we can do that with these products. Yeah, I think it's important to, to note that, um, you know, if you're really serious into survival well, uh, in your follower, obviously a Philcraft, um, but you're, you're interested in um, backpacking or the outdoors, you don't have to be on the far right in, in preparedness, but Power is something that's often neglected, especially when it comes to consumer electronics and everything else. And so the more, I guess, the further right you get in preparing or uh, getting outdoors in austere environments or remote environments, the more you have to consider your power options. And it's it's always boggled my mind because, I, you know, I lived out of a rucksack for a decade as a sniper in special operations and being deployed and being in the U.S. and training we always concentrated our efforts on looking at the best solar uh, options. And that has evolved over the last decade to an extent um, that's not really t- communicated. Um, in fact, I was, I was just talking to you b- before the podcast. I used Goal Zero about a decade ago, and it was garbage. I mean, it was funny because the, the stuff that I used a decade ago, you use recharged uh, rechargeable batteries as part of the panel solar panel pack it's because it couldn't depend on solar panel because I don't think they were efficient enough so we've come a long way right in solar technology or solar advancements we have but it's interesting because the market still most of the manufacturers out there excluding power film red arc which we've based our product off of still use the the more inefficient panels because that's what the population... Is it cheaper? It's cheaper? It's cheaper and that's what the population is trained to believe that is the product to use. And most of those are anywhere between 15 to 18% efficiency, which is they don't work in low light conditions. They're not designed for that. They're usually bigger and bulkier. So that, And that's a big difference, right? Yours actually works in low light. And, and, and we're looking out of the windshield right now and I consider this low light conditions because there's not direct sunlight. It's a little bit more passive, but but yours works more efficient. Is there a percentage that it's gauged off of? What is the, uh, ours, what is the metric? Ours, based on the solar cells that we're, we're currently using right now, it's 23.5% efficiency. So it's a big jump over 15 to 18. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when you when you look at the, the the spectrum of solar energy panels and the watts, can you explain a little bit about power? I, I've always, even when I go and I go, you know, uh, you know, 200 watts. That's a lot of watts. But what does that mean in the big scheme of things as far as power consumption and, you know, when I'm looking at options for things to buy, you know, there's, how do I compare the wattage for consumer electronics? Is there like a good median to discuss that or figure that out? I think it, um, because let's look at fridge freezers, for example, like a Dometic as an example or a... uh, Snowmaster. Snowmaster, any of those. A lot of them, they don't really say watts, but they'll they'll say the amp draw. 
Yep. But we also include that as well, too. So the amp draw, so for example, are 200 watt. I believe at uh, max power, you're going to get 10.1 amps. So I'll use my 65 liter Dometic fridge freezer as an example. When that thing is running, so when it's at full bore, so it's it has to cool down because it's plus 30 outside. It's, it's quite warm. I'm using Celsius, not Fahrenheit, by the way. Yep. So it's, it's a warm, warm day. It's anywhere between, let's say, 4.25 to 4.5 amp that it's drawing. Yeah. So at 10.1 amp, that's more than sufficient. I can run that. I can run a Goal Zero power pack. I can run several USB devices all at once, all off of that, even in low light conditions. Uh, now, back to the Dometic, when it's, when it's in its maintenance, for lack of a better term, so it's basically, it doesn't need as much power to run to keep it cool. It's usually about 0.25 to 0.5 amp, so you can see that you really don't oh, wow. need as much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's fascinating, because people would never uh, think, I mean, when I, when I went into solar and started uh, focus on, focusing on it more, did a couple of articles for Outdoor X4, Outdoor X4 and your product specifically, the 200-watt blanket, I started to realize that I didn't, even when I was in the military, you couldn't power a laptop. Like we use Panasonic uh, CF74 tough books. You couldn't power a laptop with solar uh, panels. We would use it for like small electronic, you know, GPS garments or, um, you know, cell phones that we had navigation equipment on. But then now, like I've, I've, on this trip, I've uh, powered my MacBook Pro uh, attached to this. So, is that because of efficiency, or is that because of electronics Electronics that are consumer electronics becoming more efficient, or is it a combination of both, maybe? Uh, actually, consumer electronics are actually a little bit more power-hungry. Like, as an example, oh, okay. brand new, the newer Android devices, they require yeah. minimum just under one amp to power, and it's yep. actually in the, the software. It won't run, it won't charge without that. Um, the, the iPhone styles, those are just under two amps. That's what they require. Yeah. So they're actually more power hungry. So it's more about the efficiency of the solar powers or solar blankets that we offer. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, And what I like about your uh, specific blankets is, and you have some ones that you brought, uh, which I'll get some pictures and post on social media today. Um, a couple of them are real lightweight versions. And they would be, they would be the versions that I would think of when we talk about this, uh, the vehicle being the extension of your rucksack. You know, if we're using medical equipment, for example, um, when you're walking around in the woods, you want a tourniquet on your belt, or you want somewhere you have ready accessible um, access to a tourniquet because you it, you want it in a crunch. Well, if you're looking at your vehicle as the extension of that, then you want a medical aid bag that's, you know, hell, you want an ambulance. And so when you're looking at solar power, the 200 watt, it can be packed out. How much does that 200 watt weigh? It's 13.6 pounds and it folds up to the size of a laptop. Yeah, that's not, that's not bad at all. So it's absolutely, um, um, mobile. Um, but if you look at this lightweight version, this 120 that we have in front of us, I mean, this thing is like the, the, the weight of a Nalgene bottle unfilled. I mean, it's like, it's nothing. This is the 28 that we have. Oh, is right this 28? Yeah, but the 120 that, that I showed you earlier, that one's only uh, 7.9 pounds, is what it is. And how much is this one? This is the 28. This is our lightest one that we have. It's a 28 watt, and it is only 1.1 pounds. Yeah, this and, is insane. And it's fully waterproof, fully durable, dustproof, using the exact same solar cells, and it even has two high-speed USB charging ports with a voltmeter on it. What what's what I think is different about your stuff that I've I've realized is it's, it's just ruggedized. Did you did you design 
design? Like, what, what, what's the reason? Is it your military experiences? Is it because you, you made it specifically for outdoor use? Why is it? I mean, it's every single solar panel that I've seen from other companies are they look fragile, almost like it's almost like a household panel, but these things look like they could take a beating. Exactly. Basically, I've designed them on how I would want to use them. So when I went through the process of going through several different manufacturers I'm dealing with, I don't even want to put a number on the amount of money I spent on samples that were sent to me. But uh, these ones I've field tested, I've used before I actually put them on the website and said these can be used. It is definitely based on my military experience, and as you can tell by the Forerunner, I, I, I like to overland a little bit as well, too. So. Yeah, like it, it, this is almost like a similar setup that I have in my, my vehicle. In fact, it feels like we're sitting in my vehicle. Um, <laughs> so is is overlanding a big thing in Canada? Because, you know, an observation that I never really realized about even the northern United States it's, it's freaking remote out here. I mean, you can get in some serious trouble if you're not careful or if you're not planning. And I think about Montanians or, you know, people from Idaho. I'm like, man, you if you're out here and you don't have a spare fuel tank or fuel on hand and it's like it is now where it's like 10 degrees, you could get in some serious trouble. So, you know, I know we talked about it before, Calgary uh, and Alberta just uh, overall has a lot of outdoor wilderness. Yeah. So are people doing a lot of overlanding out there? It is. It's it's not exploding. It's like every year I see it in the U.S. It's, it's exploding more and more. We don't have the population base, so it's not at the same rate. But it is, it's extremely popular here. People, I think we as human beings, to have that nature of wanting to explore, yeah. that's ingrained in us. We want to explore. We want to go see what's out there. I know there's a lot of people that like the traditional campgrounds, that type of thing. It's, you know, maybe when I'm 60 or 70. I hate those things. <laughs> it's so bizarre right to me. It's like Yellowstone where, you know, it's Yellowstone's so majestic, but it's like the drive-through wilderness experience. It's yeah. like people can go and drive, roll down their windows, take a picture of a bear, and then drive through it. And I'm like, how bizarre is that, that, you know, there's campsites where you go to a parking lot, essentially, in the middle of the woods, and then you park amongst, like... I was in Yellowstone camping that way because I had no other option, and I was on the grass by a foot, and they're like, you have to get your vehicle off the grass, and I had a rooftop tent. I'm like, but I'm 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 camping. They're like, well, you have to be on the asphalt. I'm like, oh, this is horrible. And so when I when I think about the back country of you know Alberta specifically, and then northern uh, America, if you don't have the ability to self-sustain yourself, yeah. you could end up in some serious uh, significant issues. So outsourcing everything that's solar powered or powered with solar energy is just common sense to me. Why would you not do that? Oh, exactly. And keeping it lightweight. A lot of people forget that weight and size, it's kind of your enemy. You, like you, you need to keep everything small and compact. Are you, Where does that come from, that thinking? Because what I, I just talked to Scott Brady on a podcast, the uh, CEO of Overland Journal, and he, has, uh, he owns Expedition Portal. And... You know, he's worldly traveled like you are. You know, been to, you've been to South Africa. I'm sure you've been all over the, the world. I have the same experiences. And, and then our perspective on overlanding is is less is more. And you have to count ounces and not pounds because you have to look at everything that you carry and it has to have a functional purpose. But what I've realized with the overland experience in America, and this isn't exclusively for everybody, um, and I don't mean to mean this is a generalization, but it seems like more is more. And so 
you have people putting up, piling on stuff on their vehicle. And we were just talking about like the uh, the trailers, for example, the trailer manufacturer that you guys work with as the distributor for North America. Uh, it's like 1,600 pounds. Yeah, so the heaviest one is just, it's 1,672 pounds. It's uh, the lightest caravan in the world. And we have the, the smallest one is 990 pounds, and it sleeps seven people in full comfort. Isn't that 1,600 pounds? Like nobody, the minimum I've seen in America is 5,000 pounds. And so when I think about that, it's like, it, it makes sense now because you could make your rig look like it's overland capable because it looks like it is. It's the same thing with the, the guys who ride, drive big trucks that aren't capable of going off road. Uh, we have names for them that I can't say on a podcast, but it's the same thing where, you know, if you're just driving yourself to the campsite, then yeah. But if you actually are looking at uh, the practicality and functionality of things, you have to pay attention to that. Yeah. And so when you look at, and we were just talking about, it's probably like a, a 30 or 40 degree embankment uh, with a little bit of snow on it. You couldn't do that with a, a, a forerunner and a 5,000 pound trailer or good luck trying to. But if you have that 1,600 pound, yeah. hell, I have a 1,600 pound damn near bumper on the back of my forerunner. <laughs> It'd be, it, it would be uh, pretty easy to do. Um, and that makes more sense to me that, that if you have the, kind of worldly experience or understand true overlanding, um, which, you know, it's over, you know, expedition is like overlanding with an objective. Uh, overlanding is like driving over land with, with traveling in mind. It's like you would, you need to pay attention to these things like renewable uh, energy. Oh, definitely. Like it, it reminds me, it's not overlanding, but three years ago, uh, myself and a friend, we canoed the Yukon river and I've got 250 pounds worth of two bear dogs that, that are in there. We calculated with, and I dehydrated everything for about three months, all of the food. I knew everything nice. that was coming up. Nice. Absolutely all the gear, like my, my tent is from Sweden, my hunting axes are from Norway. Everything that I have was specifically hand-picked. We figured with the 20-foot canoe, everything, all our gear, all of us in there. My fucking... Oh, dude, that was... It's still going? <laughs> yeah. I'm not even going to edit that out. I thought my phone fucking... I thought my phone died. And so, no, no, continue, continue. But, it's good. But, but either way, just speaking of weight, and it's maybe not the best example, but we did 10 days, 415 kilometers, just trip of a lifetime for me, and then we toured up through Alaska and what have you. But uh, we were 1,200 pounds. And with that weight, with how fast that river was, you basically needed, believe it or not, if you wanted to hit an island, you had to paddle hard a mile beforehand because that river was so fast you would not make it. Really? Yeah. So we missed a lot of good camping spots and ironically found a lot of good camping spots. Because <laughs> <So laughs> you overshot it and then you hit another yeah. one you're like, oh, okay, this is it. So wait a minute. You, you canoed uh, the Yukon Peninsula from, the, I'm, I'm assuming like southwest of Canada all the way up to Alaska? Nope. It was it was all in the Yukon. So it was from Carmax to yep. Dawson City is where we went to. Okay. And then afterwards, just for fun, just because I was up there, we went and, uh, went into Alaska to the, what was it, the Chilkook? It was the Chilkook River off the Chilkook Lake, I believe it is. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But just to see the salmon run, which was awesome. Man, what an amazing experience though, I, bet, I bet that was. I, that's something, you know, as we start educating, because, I, you know, I, I even want to uh, start testing stuff like this because as we start educating, my whole mindset is, you know, if you're looking at your vehicle as a survival, let's say it's a bug out consideration. Actually, there's so many people who say they have a bug out rig. You know, it's like, hey, this is my vehicle that I'm going to bug out. And and then they only have a 15 gallon tank on it. It's like, well, you're going to bug out for about 150 miles and then you don't have any options. 
So for those people who kind of go that route, well, what happens after that? Well, what happens is you have to go on foot. Your vehicle is a dead weight. And so you burn it in place, use the fuel to heat you up for a day, and then you have to actually go on foot. And so that, that mindset, with that mindset, it's like, even if you're a weekend camper, if you're planning for the worst case scenario, as a weekend outdoorsman, you go out and then you, you set up camp and then you want to get away from your rig. Well, you have to have a, a kind of different versions or different uh, capabilities of your packs. And so I would recommend like a 200 watt, for example, that I carry inside my Forerunner, but now it's inside my truck uh, right across the parking lot. Um, that you have the man packable version as well in your outdoor pack, which would be considered your go bag. Um, and I just line it out that way for our, our consumers. But, you know, when you're camping out of, out of your rucksack or off your canoe, you have to consider these kind of things. And that's why I like these 28 watts. Like, what would this power, this 28 watt version of this? What What, what is uh, well, some consumer electronics that you get? The two ports that are on there are 2.4 and 2.3 amps, so they're considered high speed. Yeah. So right now, any of the newer phones, like the newer iPhones, uh, the newer Android phones, because they're, they're extremely power hungry, uh, even an iPad, it'll run off of that. Uh, GPS, any of those types of devices will run off of that. And I, I think that's hugely important because there's there's... There's people who are preppers who are kind of snobbish about electronics and about technology. And my whole thinking is utilize and leverage technology until it's irrelevant and then have a fallback because you learned basic land navigation on a um, map and compass. But one thing I would never neglect is a, like an iPad or an iPhone because you could have 512 gigabytes of offline maps yeah. on your phone and device that you literally could use to navigate because you could ping a sat phone or a satellite connection on your phone in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere, um, because it doesn't. It, 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 if there's a tower available, it, it will use it. But there's devices that use straight to tower or straight to satellite communication, and having that capability is important. Especially, you know, I've used it in reconnaissance, uh, but having the ability to charge it on the fly in remote areas. I mean, I hunt in um, in Arizona, and there's places in Arizona even that you can get lost for for days, if not weeks. Um, what's the future for you guys as far as, uh, uh, you know, I know you guys are talking about getting into the North American market. I don't even know of many companies besides Goal Zero that are in the North American market. What's your goals for uh, off-grid Trek in the, this year? Well, the ultimate goal is just to create more awareness for this product because... It's not just because I have the company, it's I use the product. It is, to me, the best that's out there for the price point that it's at. Like this 28-watt one as an example, and I'm going to use Canadian dollars, not U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. If you were to buy the Goal Zero 28-watt one, it's $333. We're going to be marketing this at, at $299. Wow. Okay. And, and yeah. the efficiency rate on this... As an example, the other day, I was just for fun, I had a little bit of sun in the kitchen. I, I plugged into there the uh, little Goal Zero fan. Mine ran. The 28-watt one didn't. Really? Yeah. Because it's more efficient, right? Because it's more efficient, yeah. Man, and, and what I've noticed is like even uh, flopping this open, open, there's like this textured material that's over the actual s solar cell. What is this material that's on here? So it's an ETFE coating. So you can tell it's porous, and it's designed to be porous. Well, there's several reasons, but the porousness will actually absorb more sunlight. We actually, the film that's on here is imported from Japan. Traditionally, you can only get that film from Japan or Germany, just where it's manufactured. So it's designed to be, as you can tell, scratch-proof. Yeah. It's waterproof, not water-resistant. Um, and it's dust UV-proof. The UV-proof, it might sound a little weird saying that, but basically it... it 
you have about a 10 year 10 plus year uh, life expectancy with this you don't with the other products wow yeah. okay so waterproof not water resistance meaning right. I mean this could be submerged in water you could flop over yeah. off your canoe into the water and it still still will operate exactly as an electronic device not that I recommend that thing. yeah you gotta pick up gear yeah yeah <laughs> you don't want to throw this inside the water um, man uh, what is what do you think the what do you think the difficulty is in the solar market catching on because I know America we went through this with the last administration where there was this big push for solar energy and there was incentives and then it was solar and wind and it just petered off. Like people were like, it's impractical. And if you, if you talk to anybody about solar energy in America, um, especially when it comes to the household, there's like an imbalance there because they say, well, to get ahead, it's real, real pricey in the beginning. And then over a 10 year, 20 year span, you'll see the return on investment. And so people are just like, it's not worth the investment period. Um, what do you, I mean, what are the difficulties these that you're seeing in the, uh, in the solar energy field? Why, why is that? I mean, why would people not, why is there not leveraging of, of solar use across the spectrum? Or is that something that's happening in Canada? Uh, I think it's happening more and more. We're definitely seeing it more and more. And what I'm going to use is, as an example, a lot of people that like overlanding, they have the same mindset for emergency preparedness as well, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's stuff going on in the world. I don't Half of me believes in global warming, half of me doesn't. I don't know what to say on that. Yeah. But we can't deny there's different weather patterns that are happening. Is it because it's cyclical, because it's happened a thousand years yeah, ago? Yeah, there's whatever. a lot of variables, yeah. But the point I'm making is there are more storms, there are more power outages. So there are more people looking for ways to, pe- to be prepared. So I think it is catching on more and more, not only in, in the U.S., but in Canada as well. Because you look at the forest fires we just had in British Columbia. Yeah. The city that I live in, I don't have asthma, but I felt like I had smoker's cough this past summer. Wow. Like, there were times where you didn't want to go camping or overlanding because what's the point when it's that smoky? Yeah. Oh, that's 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 ironic because, you know, we in California, we had the same exact things in California with the campfire campfire that killed hundreds of people and still hundreds are missing. And um, the whole entire state from Central Valley all the way to the north were completely obliterated and infrastructure and everything else shut down. And if you're looking at, and I think it's a good a good way to educate the public because, you know, we're sitting here on the Canadian border talking about preparedness and solar energy. It starts with education. I mean, people yeah. have to be educated. The more we talk about it, the more we could uh, advise people on viable options. And no doubt, um, off-grid trick because I've tested it a lot even on this trip. Um, sometimes not even able to get on my phone because I'm just in the middle of nowhere. Um, but it, it definitely works and it works really well. And, um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm appreciative of somebody picking up, uh, yeah. you know, the uh, torch and, and moving forward with this because I, I feel like just more people need to be educated on, on renewable. It's not, it's almost not even, I had to even label it renewable because it is obviously renewable because it's always there. But it's like, why would you not think of it as a primary source? Instead of buying a crap ton of, of batteries uh, and spending a crap ton of money when you, every time you go out to refill and charge your devices, the sun's free. It's there every day. Well, and it's interesting because I just sold uh, one not that long ago to a guy in Washington State, and he was telling me with his Jeep, the dual battery setup he was going to do would be about 1200 bucks. Yeah. He bought a 200-watt solar blanket. He can use his 90-amp-hour stock battery and run a 65-liter fridge freezer all day, all night off of the 200-watt solar blanket. Now he doesn't need the added weight and the added cost for that. 
that's awesome. Yeah, it's, a, it's an investment in renewable energy. You buy it once and yeah. you have access. Yeah. It's literally your conduit, your access to the sun and the energy and then turn and transitioning that into energy. And when I think about um, survival preparedness, like people will spend $1,200 to $1,500 to $2,500 on a custom pistol for concealed carry, but they won't spend a penny on thinking about renewable uh, uh, energy. What's, what's an ideal setup? And I, and I had talked to you a little bit about it for, uh, you know, having a battery is he is, with a 200 watt is the ideal setup to have a battery, have the renewable, uh, source, the panel plugged into the battery to keep it topped off and then use the battery on the fly to be able to get the energy. Is that, is that the best setup? Yeah. So what most people will do is like, uh, as an example, you can either use your stock battery. I have a group 31 battery in mine. Uh, I just, I had that set up before I was going to get into the solar side, but you can get away with, cause we, we provide like, uh, another secondary, um, cabling option so it has a solar charge controller battery clips clips right onto the battery yep. it'll charge that then you can charge your fridge freezer if you've got that or any other electronic devices right from your vehicle the big bonus is we have two high-speed usb charging ports on the back of the solar blanket nobody else has that yeah I, so you can use both of them at, at the same time yeah yeah exactly and i don't get why nobody does that it just kind of makes sense and then our solar charge controller we have an additional two high-speed usb charging ports so you don't need that secondary battery pack yeah so again Less is more. Yeah, yeah. Always. So, uh, man, I, I, is there a tutorial on this on your website? No, no, and that's I'm gonna do. Idea. I'm gonna do one. I'm gonna steal that from you. I'm gonna do it. Okay. Because Miguel. because I'm gonna do that with a 200 watt. Because I I do have the National Luna, and I was looking at the setup. because I wanted to. The way I have it is, you know, the Dodge has two batteries, one for power and one for auxiliary. I have the National Luna spare battery set up in the truck bed rigged, but I want to be able to top that off when the vehicle is not running. So let's say I walk away from the vehicle because I go fishing. Well, I want to be able to plug in the 200 watt blanket, top off the battery while I'm fishing from the sun and then come back. And so I'm going to do a, uh, a tutorial video on a YouTube setup on that because I think that what it is, is education. Even me who knows solar energy a little bit, it's hard to get references for education mm-hmm. because it's not cool. Like tactics are cool, but once you realize how efficient and how awesome solar panel, uh, solar panels and solar energy can be, it's it's not cool because it's it's functional. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's not sexy. Solar's kind of boring. Yeah. In ways, but it's necessary. Yeah, absolutely. It's completely necessary. Absolutely. Well, uh, Renee, where can people find all of your resources for all this stuff that you do? Uh, offgridtrek.com is our website. Um, other than that, our, our phone number is 403-461-7173. We just did, uh, started a YouTube channel, so that's going to be growing as we grow nice. as well, too. Nice. So that's on there as well. Awesome, man. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to get Renee to come out to the uh, Overland Expo West. Uh, we actually have a booth uh, confirmed there. At a minimum, we'll have his products on one of our rigs on display and then have really smart people, smarter than me, on site to be able to uh, talk about the ins and outs and all the capability of solar solar power. Uh, I look forward, man, to uh, bu- building a relationship and hopefully we can get these things in uh, maybe a Philcraft store or um, in some more stores in America and get it more popularized. Uh, as it should be because it's necessary. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, no, it's amazing. We've already signed up a couple other dealers here in Canada, and I think it's going to be coming pretty quick for the U.S. as well, too. Awesome. Thanks, yeah. Renee. Thank you. Yeah, you bet.